Well, thank you, Madeline, for joining us. Uh, I'm so excited that you are here today and uh, joining the Learn to Listen community. Um, first, I thought it'd be awesome for our listeners to just explain kind of who you are and what it means to you to be a MindWise mentor. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I love podcasts. They're so fun. There's something about it. It's just a really fun conversation really. So that's what I'd love for today to be. Um, So to start, yep. Hi, I'm Madeline. I was a swimmer for 14 years. um, And I, from that, had some really, really positive experiences and also some really low experiences. And that's what's led me to eventually get my PhD in exercise and sports psychology and then uh, work with athletes at the collegiate level, currently at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and then also decided to start my own business, which is what MindWise Mentoring is, is my business where I work with uh, all types of athletes, high school, college, professional, and then also people who are navigating life after sport. So it's a really cool continuum of all stages of being an athlete. So really mind wise to me. And, you know, something that I've learned over the years where we're not necessarily meant to be doing everything with our mind, trying to figure it all out in the mind, answering the question of why or how or what. Um, So when it comes to getting mind wise is what I'll sometimes say, it's about recognizing when our mind is maybe being too active or taking over or even being a little too noisy. And by noticing that we can come back into our body, which is really in the present moment. And we can listen into our intuition and recognize a little bit better what's really meant for us in that given moment, situation, or our life as a whole. And that's what it means to get mind-wise. I love that. Yeah. As soon as I, um, you know, kind of reflected on that, I think it's interesting because athletes, you know, you're go, go, go and everything. And you don't really have that moment to take back and reflect on, you know, maybe I'm exhausted today and I just, everything I'm doing is so unproductive. And maybe you just take that as a sign, like go nap, get that extra hour of sleep or something, you know, along those lines, or even go for a walk, whatever it Uh is that you need to refocus yourself. And I love that little phrase of getting mind wise, because it's so important, but I think it gets, you know, uh, lost in the dust sometimes, unfortunately. (laughs) Totally. It's so easy uh, to get swept away, right? Especially again, getting swept up in the noise of the mind and like, oh, I should be doing this or I need to be doing that. And as an athlete, I know for myself, I'll speak personally, Uh, I always thought I was so connected to my body and my body's wisdom because I was like, yeah, I'm an athlete. I use my body all the time, right? But again, we're really taught to use our mind instead of truly tuning in to the wisdom of the body. And like you said, sometimes the, the answer is we really just need to stop and rest. And we know as athletes, resting doesn't necessarily come very naturally. Uh, so that's a perfect example of something when we do take a moment, tune in, we can recognize what we really, really need, whether it's rest, whether it is to push a little bit more or whatever it is. Maybe we need a snack because we're getting a little hangry, something, (laughs) anything, right? Um, Yeah, so I love where, you know, where that idea of getting mind-wise has come from. Mm -hmm. 
And when did you first, if you had to pinpoint when you started becoming aware of your need to, you know, become mind wise, where on your journey was that? So I really used to think I was a very self-aware person <laughs> as maybe many people do. I'm um, so 2020, right? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. And it's not that I wasn't when I was in college, for example, but it really was that all of you know my environment or my experiences um, had conditioned me to to overlook what I really needed, and instead, you know, doing a lot of things for other people. I'm a very empathetic person. I'm a highly sensitive person. I'm just super tuned in to the needs of others, and so myself got kind of swept under the rug for sure at that point. Um, and then for the next several years after college too. So I would say um, I started really building my self-awareness after we had a sudden death in the family and it just led me to feel the need, not even just the want or any, like I had to look inward at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and so I chose to do that. And I started uh, going to therapy, which I had done before, but like this was very different. I think this was, you know, really much deeper work. And so I started going to therapy. I started meditating. Granted, it took me about two years to get into that habit, but now we can talk about that later, but it's become a really good process for me, a good practice. Um, and so this now, I'm 30 now, and I started going to therapy when I was 27 and a half. So the last few years mm -hmm. um, has been that journey for me of, again, getting much more self-aware of myself, of the people around me, um, and what my needs really are. Yeah. I'd love to talk about meditation because I myself have been trying really hard <laughs> to get into medica uh, meditation. And, mm -hmm. you know, I find that when I'm, I usually meditate before bed for about 10 minutes and, uh, you know, when I'm in it and I'm like every single day, super, um, help, like hold myself super accountable. I see the impact on, like pretty short term. Um, and I've been doing so for about a year, I'd say. Um, awesome. Yeah, which is pretty awesome. But it's motivating to hear you say even it took you two years to get in. Because it does when I get away from it, you know, like I'm like, oh boy, like yep. I have to kind of get myself um, remotivated to start it again. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a big piece of it is the motivation. I was just working with a client this morning around why she feels motivation or huh, motivation. Yes. But also <laughs> meditation would be useful for her, right? Because it's easy for us to be on this side and say, you should meditate. You try it, like, you know, try to give that tool to people. Um, but we also recognize that when we're doing something because we're designed to, we're meant to, we want to, it's more exciting to us or we find joy in it in some way, uh, it's going to stick a lot easier. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we're forcefully trying to make something happen, I, I heard you say the word try, right? Like when we try too hard, I think that's when we actually end up facing more resistance when in reality, can we just kind of let it flow and mm -hmm. find some joy? Hey, this, this feels really good. And we use that feeling as motivation for doing something. 
And now I haven't meditated today because I don't, I don't meditate on the schedule. I just like, like to do it in my day when it feels really nice. And that works for me. Um, and I'm excited. Like I'm looking forward to whenever it is that I get to sit for my meditation practice today, which is a really nice place to be. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Um, I'm going <laughs> to, I think take that approach where I don't try and schedule it <laughs> and just yes. really try and be in the moment and be like, Oh, like, you know, if I'm working or whatnot, say I need a little bit of a break be like, Oh, I can take it now. That's a really great way to reframe it. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. With an athletic background, as I'm sure you can really very goal oriented, task oriented. So I yeah. think reading meditation is something not like I'm doing to achieve it, but just because I want to, that's a great way to <laughs> refocus that energy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a really important lesson to learn. And again, all of us will be on different journeys. Every single person, every single athlete and former athlete, we're all different. And that's the cool part is everyone's super unique. And that's why I said, when it comes to doing meditation more intuitively and depending on my day, that's what works for me in particular. And so for you, for anyone listening, right, take it, try it. And if it doesn't work, leave it. That's okay. Right. And you can try something else until you find the right way for you to just make whatever it is you want to work, work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And definitely a trial and error period with that as well. Like totally part of the journey is finding out exactly what works best for you and what you do like and what you don't like. Um, Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I'd love to hear too, kind of, you mentioned before that you had a tendency to put others before yourself and I'm very similar. <laughs> so I'd love to hear some of your techniques maybe as to how you started to shift that mindset of, you know, filling your own bucket a little bit more perhaps than giving everything that you had. Sure. So I'll say disclaimer, it's not really that easy right off the bat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so just like anything, similar to how we were talking about starting a meditation practice or anything, um, take it one step at a time, Mm -hmm. really. We don't have to go from zero to 60 or to use a swimming pun. We don't have to dive right into the deep end (laughs) of, of saying no to people or, you know, stepping back and protecting your own energy. Um, we can do it in more bite-sized or manageable ways. Um, but I will say, cause saying no is a big piece of it, right? Yeah. Being able to say no and, or even to have someone ask something of you and to say, you know what? I just need to think about that. I'll get back to you. Even mm-hmm. that. Cause it's not a no, Yeah. <laughs> but it's a pause. And even that pause can be challenging when you're really used to saying, oh yeah, absolutely. Of course, I'll do that for you. Of course, of course. Um, And so my first year working at Drexel, which was, uh, I guess I was, I guess it was actually around the same time that I mentioned I started going to therapy. So like all of these things kind of started around the same time when I was still finishing my PhD program, all that. Mm -hmm. And at first I was a yes person. Everybody was asking some, I was brand new, you know, like brand Mm -hmm. new to that role. All the coaches or whomever would just ask me, Hey, could you do this session at 615 in the morning? Like, absolutely. I can. (laughs) Well, let me tell you, I'm not a morning person. And those were some of the hardest days of my life. And I was exhausted. 
I wasn't really able to take care of myself once I got home, for example, definitely wasn't exercising, probably wasn't eating right, definitely wasn't meditating um, because I was saying yes to things that just weren't in alignment for me, mm-hmm. but I thought I had to. So since that, that period of time, it's been more so about either setting the boundary of no, I can't get up for that t- that time period. Like that's just not going to work. Let's figure something else out together that does work. Or again, it's about taking a pause. Hey, let me think about that and I'll get back to you. That's usually a really good place to start for people, giving yourself the pause and the moment to really think with think about it or sit on it, you know, sleep mm-hmm. on it type of thing. That's really useful. For sure. Yeah. Another thing, <laughs> you know, it's, I always like to think in different approaches that you can take. And that's a great thing to do because I do think it would be d- very difficult to go straight into saying no, like automatically, even if you want to do something, but just to practice. Mm-hmm. And like you said, taking that pause and taking that moment to kind of reflect and be like, is that something that I'll be working at or that's best for me? Um, yes, absolutely. And I'd love to learn more into, you know, your, like you said, PhD program and kind of what you learned through the education part of it, because, you know, in this field, I think there's experience, what you gain from experience, but then there's also education and what you're taught. So myself, obviously not um, having gone to upper level education for, you know, being mind wise or for psychology or social work or any of these fields, what have you gained? from that experience? Sure. Yeah, I gained a lot. I'll say that much just to start. (laughs) Um, And it's wild because, so I finished school in 2019. So June, 2019, it's about two years ago now. Um, And we covered, you know, just about everything because that's just how grad school is, just Mm -hmm. about everything. And yet when you do get to that higher level, um, it, it often becomes more specific, right? So again, like exercise and sports psychology is clearly a specific area Mm -hmm. of focus. Um, It's when I was able to do my dissertation research on the transition out of sport. And that's why I do really love working with people on that part of the continuum as well, holds a really close place in my heart. Um, And then It's given me, school gave me the upfront tools to bring into my work, Mm -hmm. right? It gave me the theory. It gave me evidence-based practices that I used pretty much to the letter when I first started working. And I would call it maybe a good home base. Let's go with that, Mm -hmm. right? It's because that knowledge has become a really good home base, um, for the way I do things, but it also gave me the confidence to step out of that box when I started gaining the experience, like you were talking about having both sides of that coin. Once I get got the experience and I was able to kind of play with, you know what, I love how I learned how to set goals in school, yeah. but I prefer to, with a lot of people, maybe be a bit more intuitive or more situation-based than trying to keep it super structured based on what we learned in our textbooks. Um, 
So really that home base is a nice place to come back to. We got the evidence. We know these things do work, but it's also okay to step outside and experiment because that's really what school is about too, right? right? It's about experimenting, going from one place to another, trying new things, and yet having an awareness of where these things came from. Mm-hmm. And with that, would you say, because I have to imagine that there's some element of uncertainty or fear, you know, when you are branching out from what you're, uh, you know, applying what you learned in school. And so with that, did you ever have like any uncertainty when dealing with clients and, you know, having to kind of pave your own path in your career? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Uncertainty is a part of life. And I think we all learned that, especially over the last year and a half with what's been going on in the world, right? Um, Is that no matter what we think with the mind, uh, we are always going to be uncertain because we can't control pretty much anything besides ourselves. Yeah. Right. Truly, we only have full control over what we do, our actions, our words, our responses, behaviors, all of that. Um, Whereas everything around us is constantly changing. And so there was definitely some uncertainty around, oh gosh, is this going to be okay? Is this going to work? Are people going to like this? People going to like me? Like, are they going to be okay with that? Um, And so taking again, the structure or the home base of what I learned, plus this more, again, like intuitive, flowy, flexible, really Mm -hmm. approach to the work. And then taking a good hard look at the person sitting in front of me, the person I'm talking to. That's when I realized that I couldn't just stay textbook because the person in front of me isn't textbook. Mm -hmm. And each person, whether it's in a physical chair in person or it's in a Zoom room, which is just as fine, right? Um, Each person is going to bring something different to that space. And that's why I've really allowed myself to lean into uncertainty because the person in front of me is uncertain, Mm -hmm. right? So that's been a really positive experience for me. And it's definitely let me level up in a way uh, beyond again, that home base of the textbook learning. Mm -hmm. And I imagine too, after a certain point in time, you know, you start to gain a lot of confidence while you're, you know, you see this works with this person and, you know, this works for multiple people, stuff like that. And you can have a more tailored approach to each of your clients. Yeah, absolutely. Again, that's the key with actually, yeah, the mind wise piece, right? So I'm becoming mind wise of myself. I'm also becoming mind-wise of each person that sits in front of me by tuning into them, tuning into their energy, really hearing them, um, hearing what they're choosing to share with me, creating the space for them to share. All of that is so important. And it's, that is not taught in a textbook. Right. It it can't, it can't really be, Mm -hmm. we can't capture it and that's okay. That's yeah. right. So being able to just tune in in the moment to who it is I'm talking to, really hear them. Um, and then we go from there together is a big highlight of the work I get to do. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. And 
you know, that I always say I love human connection and that's what drew me to psychology and just mental health in general. And so that's the most beautiful aspect of something, right? Is when you can find something that you can connect with someone on and just take it and run with it and see how that develops um, your relationship and your understanding of each other and of yourself as well. Um, yeah, so I think that's, you know, of course, what I'm always striving to do in any aspect of my life. Um, but I'd love to dive deeper into, you know, what inspired you in your own collegiate career to pursue this professionally? You know, like, what was it about swimming? I was reading a couple of your posts, um, just mo- more recently on, you know, body image and being in a swimsuit and everything you know, that comes along with that. So I'd love to hear your insights of to kind of the trajectory that you were on as a swimmer. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm glad you brought that specific piece up because you know what, I'll be honest, body image for sure is still something I work on to this day because Mm -hmm. it's something we have for our lifetime, right? Our body. We're stuck with it. Here it is. (laughs) This right. is my body here. Here it is. Right. Uh-huh. And clearly it's changed and changed and changed since I started swimming when I was eight. Um, but the one thing that really stuck around in that time period from eight to 22 was that I was in a bathing suit almost every day of my life. Um, and I'm not going to say that body image doesn't affect everyone equally or in some way, but when we are in a bathing suit, there's yeah. nowhere to hide. Yeah, right. There's nowhere to hide. <laughs> Literally. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you can't really wear makeup because it'll come off. So that's one thing that mm-hmm. goes out the window. And you can't, you know, hide anything. Not that we should be hiding, really. But the point is, is that we're all out in the open yeah. when we're wearing a bathing suit every day, especially when you're starting that as a child. We know kids are mean sometimes, uh-huh. right? It's that type of thing, all that. Um, and so I definitely struggled with it, but I also never really talked to anyone about it while I was growing up. It was something that just kind of sat in my own mind Mm -hmm. throughout that time period. Um, you know, oh, I wish my inner thighs were smaller. I remember a group of friends being like, what inner thighs? Like, what are you talking about? And in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, my inner thighs are the worst. Right. Um, and that was a really interesting process just growing up, growing up as a young woman and all those types of things coming in. And uh, then from there too, you know, when you are racing, when you're competing, if we are striving for a performance, like our best performance, our peak performance, then we can't really be self-conscious. Yeah. You know, being self-conscious is taking up space for you to perform. For sure. So you really have to, let find a way to let that go in the moment. And my best performances, I wasn't thinking about my inner thighs. Let me just tell you that right now. <laughs> it wasn't there, right? Uh, but in other moments of the sport, it was. Mm-hmm. And that was for sure challenging. So having some of those really high moments and experiencing the highs was awesome. Having some of these lows was also really challenging. And then it led to you know, the end of my sport career, feeling really, really upsetting, you know, really tragic in a way. That's where we were. So really the end of my swimming career touched the last uh, or touched the wall for the last time. You know, when I touched the wall for the last time, 
it really felt like a piece of me died. Mm -hmm. Honestly, like a piece of me died, felt like my, it left my body. It was a really wild, really visceral experience. Um, just because I, you know, internally, maybe, I don't know if it wasn't, was that I wasn't ready. I don't know if it was, um, something else, but what mattered was that it hurt Mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. And I really didn't want to think about swimming. I didn't want to think about a pool. I didn't even want to think about being an athlete right after the fact, like all of it. I just kind of wanted it to go away. You know that part of your life. (laughs) Exactly. Which we know doesn't happen unless we really manage it or deal with it in some way. Um, So in time, those things slowly but surely just kept coming up for me until again, I got to 27 and a half and had to finally deal with everything at once, all of my stuff that I never really dealt with. Um, But I guess when I started studying sports psychology was before I was dealing with those things. And I just realized I wanted to become the person who I didn't have when I was swimming. Mm -hmm. I wanted to become the person who I wish was there to support me and other athletes through the ups and the downs of being an athlete. And so my hope is that I have and will continue to be able to support athletes in whatever stage they are in um, and beyond, because it's a privilege to support people and to have people choose to trust you in what, whatever they're trying to navigate. Yeah. And I, I relate to the, um, you know, the struggles of being a swimmer, especially when you're younger, because I swam competitively from five till 13 and then picked up rowing from there. Right. And they are, you know, tight uniforms and everything. So hearing Mm -hmm. you just like body image and self-confidence and everything, and even like you said, not necessarily that we should feel like we want to hide something or hide behind anything, but it's having you know, no place to even cover up or hide. Like that is part of the sport, you know, when you sign on and sign up to compete, that is everything you're taking on with it. Um, And similarly, you know, as I've been transitioning out of sport, just having graduated, I'm now in that limbo that no one really discusses, you know, with you go from 20 hours of practice a week and then all of a sudden it's just your last race and you're like, okay, like, you know, mm-hmm. you're cleaning out your locker and you're saying your goodbyes. And it's just this whole, you know, part of you that for many people, you're not going to a professional career in sport. So you just kind of transition out of college and out of sport at the same time. And then, and I've talked to teammates who are older than myself, but they're kind of like, yeah, no one really prepares you for kind of that loss or identity, um, I don't want to say crisis because it's not a crisis, but (laughs) you know, that part of yourself that it's like, Oh, what am I going to fill my time with that had been filled with such a community um, with teammates and with competition? Yeah. We don't really think about it because I guess when you stop and say to yourself, like, why would you want to think about it is one piece of it, right? When you're competing and you're actively competing and your goal is to just keep performing at your best and 
again, sharing that with your teammates and all of it, you know, we want to be in the experience. Mm-hmm. We, we already talked about being present, right? Like present moment awareness. So that's one hand of it. It's like, we want to be present with our experience, but something we can do that I want to say some places, there's some programs out there that are trying to start doing this is that mindful preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, because if we're just thinking about something or planning for the future in a more, you know, out of fear, basically like, Oh, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh my God, this is horrible. Yeah. I'm scared. But that's not necessarily intentional or mindful. Right. But when we take the time, we set that time aside, we're actively participating in learning about, well, yeah, outside of sport, what are my interests? Mm-hmm. What do I enjoy? Um, it, it goes the same for school. You know, obviously being a student athlete, you are meant to be studying to do something, but then again, we can always change our minds too. Yeah. Is the thing. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's really about exploring. Are you, are we taking some time to explore something or anything that goes farther than our sport may take us? Um, and that starts with just exploring yourself, mm-hmm. right? Going inward and looking inward at who you really are, because sport is what you do. It's not who you are, mm-hmm. no matter what anyone says. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I think that's such an interesting and important, you know, distinction to make, because yeah. I know myself, there were times when you know, you do prioritize the sport over yourself. And yeah. I was injured and I, I broke my rib and, you know, but right up until you have that moment where, you know, you feel the rib crack or the muscle strain, something like that, you're like, you know, it's, it's worth it because you're going after this bigger goal, you know, the team right. winning and everything like that. But the line, I know for myself, I've blurred that a ton. Um, but as I was starting to get older and I think around my junior year, I started to make the distinction of this, mm. is what Mariah, the rower is doing. And this is what Mariah, the person is doing. And I really started to prioritize, yeah. you know, like, is it worth all that extra anxiety going into the performance tests and everything like that of being, you know, putting all this pressure on myself and saying, you have to perform this way or else you're not a valued member of the team and just kind of that way or that mindset or um, that inner dialogue I would have with myself. I, I noticed I started to have a more intentional um, shift in, you know, saying like that, that 2k for rowing, which is, you know, that, um, Mm -hmm. that metric that we use is not you being anxious and speaking to yourself like this is only hurting, you know? So mm-hmm. right. that mindful prep, I think is super, super, super important um, to be aware of. And, you know, I, I like to think that I spoke with my younger teammates <laughs> about the importance of that and that they're yeah. hopefully going to continue that after um, we graduated. But yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. I love to hear that because you know what, that's a big part of it too, is um, sharing that awareness, right? Mm -hmm. So what were you doing there? You were just helping them get mind wise, which is awesome. Yay. (laughs) Right. Because it, it's wonderful if, and when we can 
do what you just described on our own. Oh my gosh, how cool, right? And it will happen sometimes. That's really, really beautiful. And other times it really will take something from outside of us, typically just a person, whether it's someone like me or it's a teammate or it's a coach who happens to really have that really beautiful and powerful awareness. Um, It sometimes does take that, that voice from outside to help bring out your own voice, Mm -hmm. right? And to help quiet that internal dialogue, those intrusive thoughts, that inner critic and something I call that voice so often. Uh, And so it's beautiful to pass that on to people. Really, really awesome. Yeah, um, I completely agree. And thank you for the compliments. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I love to know more about the, you know, the preparation for transition out of college that you mentioned some universities were doing. So just because I'm curious, Notre Dame, at least not that I know, has a similar program. But, you know, what steps, if you know of any, are they implementing to try and help um, those athletes transition? Sure. Yeah. Like I said, there's not too many uh, like nationwide necessarily. There's just, and that's, I feel like that's a, that's the hope for a lot of things is that um, especially with all the things coming down the pike through the NCAA that Mm. the transition might be looked at more earnestly Um, we can only keep our fingers crossed that things like that will happen. Right. Uh, but when we are saying things like we do what we do for our student athletes and their well being and their experience, not just here, but their life experience, then the transition is clearly something we have to acknowledge and help with in some way. Um, so the, you know, any programs that are out there, they typically are a combination of, um, you know, establishing routines, right? So um, being in that in-between gray area, like you were describing, you, yeah. you're feeling a little bit of, right, is really reestablishing routines that fit for you outside of sport. So that would be one component of that. Another piece of it is, of course, having to do with career and going into career. I'm really understanding like what that will take from you versus what you were doing in your sport. Um, it's just different. You mm-hmm. know, it's not that anything's better, worse, harder, easier, whatever. It's just different. And so uh, evaluating like your expectations and what it's going to take for you to do what you want to do and accomplish outside of sport would be a piece of it. Um, and then we have the more, you know, mental, emotional, uh, psychological side of it mm-hmm. where there is a shift in identity um, and it will depend on who you are and how much you identify with your sport, right? That af- athlete identity yeah. um, is a big piece. And I was very similar to you where I think my athlete identity started kind of lowering a little, not lowering in a negative sense, but I was understanding the balance a bit more around my junior year too. Um, cause school got more interesting for me. Like I really loved my psych classes at the time and swimming, you know, I loved it until I didn't right. really is the way I describe it. So it just depends for people where they are. They could be a one, which most people that are a one probably aren't competing that much at that point because it's right. <laughs> you know, very, very low. Um, it could be at a 10. That's where things are totally enmeshed 
and it can be very hard to separate. Um, and then we can have people around a five or whatever, right? Uh, so working with people to shift that identity, to grieve the loss, if they're really feeling that grief, which is absolutely something we can feel because it's a death, it's a loss. Really? It is, yeah. it's a loss and that's okay. Um, and then also just gaining that self-awareness we've been talking about is really important in terms of um, where they can find joy, how they're creating connections outside of sport with people. Because gosh knows, I had automatic friends my whole life. Exactly. Automatic. Yep. <laughs> automatic. You just join a team and you have automatic friends. Um, nobody told me that when I was 22 and was no longer on a team, I had to make friends without yep. a team. What do you mean? <laughs> How do I do that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Right. Or even working out on so, my own. I'm like, it's so weird not having yes. the other people doing the same exact workouts, you know? Yes, exactly. So all those things, finding the connections, reworking, uh, how you exercise, what types of exercise you use, um, even what exercise means to you, mm -hmm. right? And what you consider exercise changes too, yes. right? I do not do anything super, super, super high intensity anymore because I just don't like it yeah. and that's okay. Uh, but at first I was like, I suck for not wanting to go do this, that, and the other thing. But now I'm like, wait, I love walking. Walk, And I used to think walking was an exercise, which is wild. But it is. It is, everyone. It's exercise. <laughs> I promise. It's awesome. Um, right? So things like that, shifting is really important. And we can help people make those shifts. So that way it doesn't feel really assaulting, basically, when all of a sudden things are taken away and now you have to do things differently. Mm -hmm. I love that you mentioned walking because I... Yeah. <laughs> You found love for walking. Yes, um, awesome. But I still <laughs> is that like uphill battle where you're just kind of fighting with yourself, and you're like, I used to, go, you know, two hours a day every day. Yes, cardio and train, like weight training and everything. And so now I'm like, I'm going on a walk. I'm like, wow, that's just gonna be that's gonna be it for a bit. But I am, you know, kind of relearning and reestablishing that relationship with working out um because as you know it was just you know this is what coach gave you and this is the workout you're doing <laughs> right absolutely so even designing my own workouts like in the gym I'm like I have you know I can do whatever I want basically <laughs> anything yeah anything at all <laughs> which is really cool and yet it at the same time you know, what it sounds like you're describing is like, there is a potential for it to feel overwhelming because it is anything. I could do anything. What do you mean? Very I, much. So. I, I'm just so used to someone telling me what to do and now I'm going to do it, which is awesome. Right. At the same time. Um, so finding my suggestion for that and for anyone listening about that is just like going towards the things that you like, mm -hmm. like, what do you actually like? And Yes, there's going to be times where maybe you feel inclined to do something that you don't love with your whole heart, um, whatever that might be. And yet, why not lean into things that bring you joy? You know, if you enjoy a Zumba class, go to a Zumba class because you like to dance. Honestly, just do it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, or maybe it is, you really, really do enjoy lifting. 
awesome. What types of lifts do you like? What won't create this, you know, uh, that noise, those intrusive thoughts we were talking about earlier that will actually keep you from going to do that, yeah. right? Start there. And then once you're back into some type of routine on your own, if you want, if it's, you know, you're a- allowed to obviously do this, if you want to then bring in some other things that might've been causing resistance up front, see how it feels then. You always get the choice to reassess what you do or do not like. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, exactly. There is that duality of it being exciting, but very overwhelming. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause it is just different. Right. So, yeah. and I think it's funny too, cause I, you know, after I'd finished my swimming career, I was like, you know what, I don't think I'll swim another day in my life, but then you start to miss it. And, you know, sure. rowing the same thing. I was like, I don't know if I'll ever get back on that erg again, you know, mm-hmm. but now I'm sure. like, it feels so weird without it. Um, yeah. But yeah, and it's having, you know, like all these new classes that I can go to and finding another type of community within working out. Mm-hmm. I, do, I do miss that part, you know, of, of mm-hmm. organized sport. Um, but then there's so many things nowadays that you can reorient your life to, you know, like Orange Theory and CrossFit and like F45, all these classes that really establish the same sense of community, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just about finding where you fit, right? That's where the uniqueness comes back in and the trial and error piece comes back in too. You might, I, all of those things, more or less, there's maybe one in there that you mentioned that I hadn't tried, but I tried all the rest of them mm-hmm. and then other things, right? Like other types of gyms um, until I realized that I like working out at home. Oh, <laughs> it's so funny. It's so funny. But again, that's where the differences come in. For me, I enjoy it over quarantine. I actually have established my yoga practice because I got to do it over Zoom. And I really liked it. Uh-huh. Uh, and now it's a very solid practice for me um, because I still get to do it at home. I don't have to leave and you know get in the car and or walk there or whatever. Um and yet I'm getting to join in community with people online and doing my yoga practice, but while being in my own energy at the same time. And so that's taken many years for me to figure out that I, that I, you know, match with the best or align with the best and not to say it will take others many years, but that's why I do what I do, helping people to kind of speed up that process a little bit. Um, and other people out there are are open to supporting people through that as well, because, you know, I don't need anybody to take eight years to figure that out. I really, <laughs> I, I would be happy to help people figure out much faster, but then again, it was my journey and that's okay. Mm-hmm, right. That's right. perfectly fine. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't it funny too, you know, maybe without COVID, you would have never have experimented with, you know, having your own yoga practice and everything. Um, yeah, one of those absolutely. Stable futures. And yes. two, in addition to your yoga, you also um, wrote your book. And I was going to ask, you know, yeah. I have to imagine when you're writing a book, there's so many things that you have to cut out. And because you only have, you know, so much, um, so many pages to write everything consent, consensively um, and to fit it into a book. So, what was that experience like? 
Yeah. So I have always wanted to write a book. Mm -hmm. I don't know when I told myself I wanted to write a book, um, but I just feel like it's something that's always kind of been there. Uh, I did always want to write a book that would be some form of like self-help or personal development for sure. I just didn't know what to write about. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what to write about. Um, And it was, I guess the idea came back to me last April-ish. So April, 2020 was when all of a sudden I'm like, huh, I'm getting this itch about that project of like, yeah, that actually is something I want to do. But then I put it away, didn't think about it again for many months. Um, All of a sudden, like six months later, the itch came back. This was now like November of 2020. And I just really stopped to think about it and thought about all of the athletes I work with, thought about a lot of the work I'd done with myself and what I'd come to realize about myself. Um, But most importantly, the the athletes and clients I work with, because most of them, a large, large, large majority of them that come to me to share things with me are some are introverted, not all of them, but some are introverted, some are shy, and most are highly sensitive. And I am highly sensitive. And I didn't know what that was several years ago at all. Um, But once I started noticing similar traits, similar qualities, even similar stories between what I'd experienced in my life and what they were currently Mm -hmm. experiencing, that showed me that this needed to be talked about, um, that we can be highly sensitive, which, you know, from, from all that I've learned about it is a trait, you know, it's just a part of who you are. Uh, it's something that most often you're born with. Sometimes we have life experiences and it makes us more, you know, in tune or sensitive to our environment as well. But a lot of the time it's just, we are highly perceptive is another word for being highly sensitive. Um, And we can be highly sensitive and an athlete. Mm -hmm. You can be both because like we said, being an athlete is something you do, you know, playing a sport is what you do, but being highly sensitive is who you are. So it's about coming together with who you are in your sport performance. Um, And how do we embody that? How do we embody our true self? That's it. So writing it actually came super naturally to me because I got to write about myself. I got to write about my athletes. And then of course, you know, bringing in some, I got to bring in some of my dissertation research was pretty cool. I'm like, oh, yay, look at me go, bringing it back up. Um, And then also other research as well. But the writing, the writing just came right out, which was very, very beautiful of a process. So I wrote it in about 10 weeks, which is wild to think about. Um, And it's a book where it's some reading, it's some reflection writing. So there's space for reflection in there. Uh, You know, as you're reading, you're actively reflecting because I want people to really learn something about themselves while reading this book. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost done. It's I'm done, but they're finishing with all the designing of it. And I'm really excited to be sending that out to people very soon. Mm-hmm. I love that you included the reflection piece so that people yeah. can, it's kind of 
you know, interactive in a way. Yes. Um, because, yeah. you know, you can take what you've learned and what you've written about and apply it to your own life. And of course, as we all know, that takes more meaning <laughs> in our own life when yeah. we can apply it to our experiences. Absolutely. Yeah. Because we're, when we're talking about embodying our truest self, right? Actually, going back to that, one of the first things you know, we're talking about, about saying no to people or mm-hmm. not being a people pleaser or you know, just changing that part. Um, we most often are doing things for other people because we haven't truly connected on the deepest level with our needs mm-hmm. and who we really are and how, how we want to express that in the world. And it's often pretty scary to right. do that, right? When we're so used to, uh, you know, just doing things the way, um, the way sport asks of it or the way our coaches ask of you or the way our parents ask of us or anything, mm-hmm. anything in our environment leads to us covering up who we really, really, really are. And so when it comes to uncovering, or the word I like to use is unbecoming, so we unbecome all this stuff we picked up that isn't really us, um, to do that, it's not passive. Mm-hmm. This is not a passive process. You can't just sit there and you know, casually read a book, which granted is great for us, you know, for a lot of other things, right? But you can't just sit there and like, let it go in one ear and out the other and expect it to just integrate and us to all of a sudden, you know, rise from the ashes being our true self, because we just simply read the book. It's about taking the lessons, applying them to what's going on in your life or in your past, etc. Setting different intentions for yourself, recognizing what your strengths are, what brings you joy, all of those types of things. Um, And then by the end of the book, I explain, I think at least five, it might be six, I can't remember, um, practices, like embodiment practices that you can start trying out to to really unbecome those, that or that conditioning, any conditioning that we've picked up. So yeah, it's a very active, powerful process. Mm -hmm. And I love that and kind of giving power to um, the reader to take that action and make it a goal of theirs and really integrate it into their, um, their life. And I love to saying that, you know, you can be a highly sensitive person and an athlete at the same time, because I think what gets portrayed or what's gets, what gets lost in the messaging a lot of the times is that with athletics and with competing, you have to, you know, shy away from any vulnerabilities, any weaknesses, because you are a competitor. That is, you know, the definition of the sports that we all sign up to do. And so with that, um, I think it's a very impactful and powerful message to say, you know, you can be your own person, but that doesn't mean it impacts your athleticism or your ability to compete. And, you know, of course, with Learn to Listen, that's exactly what I wanted to push myself to do more of because I did struggle with being vulnerable and letting people see, you know, that more human side because, Mm -hmm. you know, you wanted to be portrayed as this powerful athlete who like nothing could get to me, you know, like I'm 
constantly on and I will be, you know, a competitor in every aspect of my life. Um, but I love that messaging and I can't wait, you know, for the book to come out. And (laughs) yeah. Um, Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that, that, um, reflection of yourself because it's, you know, in sport, we're taught to be strong mm-hmm. and tough. And what I wanted to do or want to be since it's not out yet. And I'm, I know it will happen through just all of us doing like you sharing these stories is so important. Right. And other people sharing their stories and um, supporting one another through this is take back the power of what it one means to be sensitive. If you are sensitive, right. And if you are a highly sensitive person, especially um, because being sensitive isn't negative. Yeah. Being sensitive is, can be a strength if you choose to see it that way and use these traits to your advantage. And so that's a big piece of it is like, let's change the paradigm of what it means to be strong in sport and recognize that asking for support is strong. That's probably the strongest thing will ever do mm-hmm. is decide that we need help. I couldn't agree more with whatever it is. It's extremely strong and it's extremely brave to look inward and decide you need support. Um, and that's not what we're taught in sport. So it's clear right now with everything that's going on um, that people are starting to have that conversation, mm-hmm. right? And recognizing, hey, everyone is different and everyone deals with things in their own way. There isn't one way to do it. And there isn't one perfect description of athlete Yeah, because each one, now we have the Olympics, fingers crossed happening, of course. Um, (laughs) And you look at all of them and all of them are the best in the world, but they're all different. Mm -hmm. And that's a really, really cool, you know, model to look up to. That's why we do look up to Olympians, even though now I'm so much older than so many of them. I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> not so much. Just kidding. I'm, we all, I shared how old I am. I'm not that old. 30s, not old people. It's awesome. I'm young. Right. But it's wild to see like young 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds in the, in the Olympics and continuing to really admire them for everything that they're doing. So can we take that power back and say, Hey, sensitive is strong and beautiful and we can cry and we can express how we feel, or we can just, you know, recognize, Hey, I'm feeling overwhelmed. Can you support me through that? That is strength. And whether you're an athlete or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I truly do think that I like to think that we are on the best trajectory that we have had ever. Yeah. Um, that being said, there's still so many more things that we have to to truly get, you know, (laughs) um, to where it should be. But I love, you know, with the Olympics, especially coming up, yes, fingers crossed. Um, (laughs) yeah, having those like role models that we can look up to and even, you know, it can be as little, you know, as great as the Olympics and Olympians that we're seeing, but then also like we were discussing earlier, just like a teammate being that person Mm -hmm. that, you model after. Um, yes. And so important, you know, just to have this community and have everyone be on the same, you know, trajectory moving forward. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Power in numbers. We've known that forever, right? We've said that's a phrase that's been said for a long time. And yet I feel when athletes um, coming back to the transition out of sport, like when athletes leave sport, they feel like they have to go at everything alone. Uh Like, oh, I'm tough. I'm an athlete. I can do it by myself. And this has been one of the biggest condition beliefs that I personally have had to adjust, that I've helped people adjust, is recognizing that if you were an athlete, you've actually never done anything alone. You're completely right. Yes. (laughs) Ever. But it's wild that when it's over, we jump to this belief that, well, I have to now. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, oh, no, I don't. I just have to find new support, whether it's in some form of coach, whether it's in, like we were talking about connecting with new groups in terms of exercise groups and things like that. Um, whether it is making friends that aren't athletes, but we have to, and we have to figure out a way to do that. Uh, we never, ever have to do life alone humans aren't designed to, Mm -hmm. to begin with. So finding a way to, again, rewire what does tough mean? What does strength mean? And recognize I'm not, I don't need to be alone. So how can I recreate that feeling of connection and support outside of sport is super important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think that is exactly what (laughs) MindWise Mentor is doing. You're helping so many amazing people. Um, and I'd like to thank, you know, learn to listen is also helping reach that community and have people find a place that they can go to and share their story and hopefully embrace their vulnerabilities as well. Um, so I have to thank you so much for joining our podcast and coming on and sharing all your amazing insights. You know, I'm going to move forward (laughs) with all these ways to reframe my thinking. Um, but it's been so amazing. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is awesome. You're doing amazing work and I'm so excited that there's more people out there sharing this message.